This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Hey, everybody, it's Jessica. Today, we're going to talk about the cases that E. Jean Carroll filed against former President Donald Trump, and specifically the two defamation cases that she filed and won. And I can think of no one better to talk about those cases with than Erica Orden. She's a reporter for Politico, and she was in the courtroom during much of these trials. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So as listeners know, E. Jean Carroll is a journalist. She alleged that former President Trump sexually assaulted her in a department store in the mid-1990s. She said in a book and in other places, he sexually assaulted me. His response was, no, I didn't. And you're not my type. Of course, you're not my type being his defense for, and therefore I didn't sexually assault you. And the argument was that his claim of, no, I didn't sexually assault you. No, you're not my type. That that was actually a defamatory statement and that it was a false statement and that Former President Trump knew it was a false statement, that he said it anyway, and that it damaged E. Jean Carroll's reputation. There were, of course, two different suits. And they were, again, could you clarify, when were the statements made for each suit? So there were some statements made while Trump was president, and there was a question as to whether or not he was immune from liability because those potentially were, quote unquote, official acts, because presidents do have some immunity from civil suit, particularly based on official acts, they have full immunity. And then there were other statements made after he was president. So which statements were subject to the first trial and which statements were subject to the second trial? So the first trial concerned the sexual abuse claim and the sexual assault claim and the set of statements that were made in 2022 after he was out of office. The second trial concerned, which was only a defamation, which, which was a trial only about defamation, concerned the statements he made at while he was president um, in 2019. And the first trial, the jury found that there was liability, that the former president did make defamatory statements. And how much did that jury award in damages? That was a total of five million dollars in damages for both um, for both sorry for both defamation and sexual abuse, which pales in comparison to uh, the verdict in the second trial. So, as you said, the first trial involved defamation and sexual abuse because of that New York law that extended the statute of limitations and allowed people to sue for sexual assault and sexual abuse. It gave them essentially an extra year, even though the statute of limitations otherwise would have expired and those claims would have been time barred. So, bring us to the second trial. The second trial actually didn't have anything to do with liability, did it? It did not. Judge Kaplan ruled prior to the start of the trial. He ruled that 
Trump's statements in 2019 were in fact defamatory. And he, as a lot of people expected, um, did not allow, he, he instructed the jury many times, in fact, that that they were to uh, accept that Trump did sexually abuse uh, e. Jean Carroll and that he had made defamatory statements in 2019 about her. And so the the second trial really was a question of the number that they were going to put that they that the jury wanted to put on damages. Did you have an expectation going in as to what the potential range could be for damages? Did you have any sense there were two types of damages to that, right? Compensatory and punitive in this case. That's right. Um, so I, I suppose I had a ballpark sense. Like it's not a very small ballpark, but um, Carol's lawyers had put a number on compensatory damages. They, at the outset of the trial, said they would be asking for $10 million in compensatory damages. They did not put a number on um, punitive damages. However, they repeatedly emphasized to the jury that they that they should award damages in the amount that they that the jury believed it would take to stop Donald Trump from continuing to defame E. Jean Carroll. And to that end, they introduced evidence of his continued um, comments about her, and they even went out of their way to tell the jury that his defamatory comments had continued about her even during the trial. They introduced video evidence of a press conference he had during the trial in which he defamed her again. They they showed the jury some of his uh, social media um, posts about her that he, again, posted during the trial. So they were, they they were really making the point that they were trying to make the point that it would probably take quite a large number to stop him from continuing this. So, I mean, having heard that, I did expect them to 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 come back with a, a large number. In all honesty, I I wouldn't have been surprised if it had been even larger than than the sixty five million dollars in punitive damages that they came. How out. that I thought you were going to say. In all honesty, I didn't expect it to be this high, but maybe this is the difference between me viewing this trial from an outsider's perspective. I certainly wrote about defamation law and immunity, but I wasn't in the press room, and so could you? bring us there. And I have so many questions about the case. But first off, can you tell us about jury selection and how carefully this jury was picked? Because it seems to me that that 80 plus million dollar verdict indicates that this jury was really angry at Trump and wanted to send a message. And what was it like watching jury selection? To be honest, jury selection was very straightforward and and pretty quick. And it that's also true of the first trial, of the first Carroll trial, which was also like this one in front of Judge Kaplan. There was really only one, um, if I can correct if I recall correctly, there was one juror, maybe two, um, who said that uh there were two who answered that they believed that the 2020 presidential election had been stolen. (laughs) 
Um, and there were um, one or two, I believe, who said they had refused to get COVID vaccines. And there were, I think, maybe one or two who said they had donated to Trump. So between those, th- those were sort of the obvious people who weren't going to make it. <laughs> but aside from that, um, there weren't any other um, prospective jurors who really jumped out that far as being, um, you know, as as either side would object to, as either side would would strike. So it it was fairly smooth. There wasn't really anything that notable except for those those particular answers. I will say that I know somebody who got into the box, what didn't make it into the jury, but uh, that person's perspective was interesting. And you just mentioned Judge Kaplan, the judge who presided over the previous trial and this trial. Could you talk to us a little bit about Judge Kaplan's style? I know that there were a number of exchanges that he had with Trump that, based on the reporting, sounded quite heated and contentious. Did you have a view of how he was as a judge presiding over these? very high profile cases. Sure. Um, I mean, he's someone he's been on the bench for, I believe, 30 years, maybe a little bit more than that. He runs a really tight ship. (laughs) He, you know, has a lot of uh, rules that he wants, you know, the 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 parties and the lawyers to to, um, abide by. He's very strict when it comes to letting even the lawyers speak in court, let alone anybody else. And, and you know, he al- has all sorts of other rules about his courtroom that don't ap- apply to particularly to, to trials. But like, for example, you know, even, even um, people like lawyers or reporters who are authorized to have electronic devices in the courthouse can't bring them into his, into his courtroom. It, as it turns out during the trial, one of Trump's um, advisors, uh, his, cell phone, which I guess he had brought into the courtroom, rang and Judge Kaplan immediately threw him out. Um, I don't know if he ever returned. Uh, I suppose it's possible, but he might have been <laughs> he might have been banned from there on out. In any case, there were there you're right, there were a number of heated exchanges, but that's not that uncommon for for Judge Kaplan. I mean he he's he's just a very he's a very strict judge and if he doesn't like something, he really puts his foot down. And there was a moment that I remember reading about where Judge Kaplan essentially threatened to throw Trump out of the courtroom. And there was some up and back where Judge Kaplan said, I think some version of you would love that, wouldn't you? And Trump said, yes, I would. Was it as contentious throughout as it, the reporting indicated? Yes, it was fairly contentious. Um, I will say that having, you know, I also covered Trump's civil fraud trial, and there were many differences between the civil fraud trial and the E. Jean Carroll trial, um, most notably that there was no jury in the in the civil fraud trial. But um, Trump was in front of Judge Kaplan much more controlled and seemed to be limiting himself much more um, in terms of his reactions, responses, behavior, even though it still in- appeared to, you know, infuriate Judge Kaplan at times. Um, but compared to other scenarios I've seen him in in court, he was quite a bit more reserved, I would say. Interesting. And 
What about Trump's attorneys? Certainly, I read a lot about his representation and whether or not they served him well, whether or not they should have asked for, for instance, a jury trial, even though I know that was unclear as to whether or not that was legally possible. Trump's attorney is also his spokesperson. Could you talk to us a little bit about how she conducted herself in the courtroom? Sure. So she, I I think, seemed to be a bit taken aback by Judge Kaplan's handling of the courtroom and by his roles and by his, the way he, you know, speaks to various people in the courtroom. Um, I think she was, she seemed a bit unprepared for that aspect of it. And there were definitely moments where he criticized her for that openly. Um, Particularly, there were some incidents involving her trying to introduce evidence that he didn't like the way she was going about it. And there was a sort of separate but related incident in which there was a slide in her PowerPoint um, for her closing argument that contained sort of a variety of different, I think they were different um, social media posts of Carol's, I believe, or maybe they were of Trump's. I can't really really recall, but it was, it was a variety of different social media posts that um, she wanted to use. And it got thrown out because Judge Kaplan said, well, if you wanted to use this, you should have introduced it as evidence and you never did. So you can't use that anymore. <laughs> and so I, she, I, I imagine she found that frustrating. And, you know, in terms of her also serving as his, um, I think her title is like legal, legal spokeswoman yes. or something like that. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, she would go not certainly not every day, but there were a number of times when she would go speak to reporters, you know, outside the courthouse or things like that, which is not, which is not uncommon for a lawyer um, in a high profile case. But, you know, there was also, I was referring earlier to that incident, I'm sorry, to the um, press conference that Trump had midway through the trial. And she also sort of introduced him and spoke at that. And yeah, I mean, she sort of has a dual role in that sense. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit unconventional. Honestly, a lot of the reporting I read made it sound like it was just the side of a dumpster fire. Was it that bad in terms of, I mean, you've witnessed a number of these cases. Were there really cringeworthy moments here or was it overblown and it was really just a view of her position and their legal argument? But in terms of lawyering, it really wasn't quite all that catastrophic. There were some cringeworthy moments. I mean, definitely the back and forth between Alina Haba and Judge Kaplan prior to Trump's own testimony was, um, I, I don't know, it, it was it was definitely heated. And she was very unhappy that she was being asked to preview her questions in front of him, preview Trump's in front of Judge Kaplan, preview her Trump's answers, sort of go through that whole ordeal. And I wasn't particularly surprised that was that was happening because, you know, as as the judge said many times, you know, it's his job to make sure that inadmissible evidence doesn't, you know, doesn't come before the jury. And he was doing everything in his power to make sure that was going to be the case. And he's, um, I'm sure he's aware of how Trump has <laughs> behaved during other testimony. I'm sure he was watching the civil fraud trial and 
and seeing how Trump, you know, what Trump's testimony was like there, which was all over the place and wild and discursive and, you know, angry. And so, yeah, I would say that that exchange was definitely um, fraught. What about on the other side? So E. Jean Carroll had Roberta Kaplan, no relation to Judge Kaplan, as her attorney. Roberta Kaplan famously argued before the Supreme Court in a case called Windsor that led to the Obergefell decision saying essentially there's a fundamental right to marriage and that gay people do have a right to marry and is, in my view, seen as a trailblazer. How did her lawyering compare? I mean, was it no comparison? Um, I imagine that she was extremely well prepared in the courtroom. She was extremely well prepared. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I I think they're very hard to compare. Um, I, I mean, Robbie Kaplan, as you pointed out, is extremely experienced. Also, she was, she was uh, e. Jean Carroll's lawyer in the first Carroll trial. And Alina Haba, I can't remember if she was in the, I, I guess she was in the courtroom, but she, I don't ever recall her speaking at the first Carroll trial. And yeah, I mean, I, I just, Robbie Kaplan, um, you know, her, she did the closing. Um, she, I don't, I don't think she did the opening for, for Carol. Um, but you know, she's very thorough, very experienced. She, you know, like I was saying before, she went out of her way to sort of impress upon the jury that they needed to, as you put it, you know, punish Donald Trump for what he had been saying. And she, they, they seemed to, you know, take her instruction. <laughs> you mentioned Donald Trump. He was there. He didn't need to be there. Could you talk to us about how his presence and behavior changed the mood, you think, from watching in the courtroom and how maybe it changed the verdict? Maybe. I mean, I, I know that Robbie Kaplan gave an interview, um, I believe it was to Anderson Cooper, saying that she definitely felt like his behavior and in particular um, his uh, he walked out during Robbie Kaplan, Kaplan's closing argument. And she I know that she said that she felt like that really probably in her mind pushed the jury over the edge in terms of awarding a big punitive damages award. Um, but yes, I mean, he, he, for one thing, his presence in the courtroom means that it's, he is disruptive. He, <laughs> you know, he's, he whispers to his lawyers a lot. He gestures with his hands. He's like, you know, sort of like shuffling papers and trying to look over various things at his table. Um, and he, you know, as you we were referencing a couple times, you know, he had sort of impromptu exchanges with the judge sometimes, um, even just from, you know, sitting at the um, defense table, not even on the witness stand. And it's, you know, it's everything that you see from Donald Trump in public. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, it's hard to predict what he's going to do, except that it will probably be disruptive. And it was. Do you agree that his... Uh verbal conduct, his nonverbal conduct, his decision to storm out. I don't think it was even walking out, but storm out. How heavily do you think that weighed in the jurors' minds? I think it probably weighed pretty heavily because the whole question that they're being asked to answer is, 
can Donald Trump play by the rules, essentially? Like, they weren't being asked to answer, did he sexually assault Eugene Carroll? They weren't being asked, you know, any number of other things. They were being asked, can he be made to follow the rule of not defaming E. Jean Carroll. <laughs> and again, they were presented with evidence over that over and over again, he just won't do that. And so I think that, I think that, you know, his storming out, his sort of being disruptive, disruptive in the courtroom, things like that, that probably, if I had to guess, speaks in their mind to his inability or unwillingness to um, do as he's told. Is there something that you wish people understood about this trial that you think maybe people who were just reading headlines or weren't able to follow it as closely as you did? I mean, very few people followed it as closely as you did because you were providing all of us with information. But is there something you wish that we could understand about this second trial? I think, I mean, I always think, but definitely in this case, it's it's hard to convey um, or to understand like the emotion and tension that comes with testimony like Carol's or even like Trump's. It it's just there's so much anticipation for them, and um, there's so much the expectations are so high. Um, it's just uh, it's hard to to capture that in stories and to convey it. And I mean, for that reason, I suppose it's unfortunate that there's no videos in the courtroom. But um, yeah, I wish people could could see that um, because I think I think it's worth seeing. I think it's worth hearing both of them in their own words testify. Is there anything that you think we can take away from this trial that might give us some indication of what's going to happen in the upcoming trials? I know before we pushed record, you and I were talking about which of the trials could go next, but is there anything about Trump being there, about the legal arguments that were made? I mean, obviously, very different claims, different parties, but is there anything that we can look at and say, this gives us some insight into what comes next. Yes. I mean, I think that for one thing, it's really the first time I believe that we've seen him in a uh, federal court in person and before a jury. So those two things will be applicable <laughs> to a lot of these other, uh, to, well, to two of these other cases and uh, two of the criminal cases. And um, I think, you know, I like, I think he has a hard time behaving himself. And so, and that's, and it's necessary to do that in front of a jury. Um, a judge demands it. So um, I think, you know, I don't know how he felt about um, having to do that or whether he felt constrained or frustrated, but um, I think, you know, he'll have to do that. Like you said, he didn't have to be at this trial. He will have to be at his criminal trials and he'll have to be there all day long for weeks on end in some cases. So I imagine that, um, I mean, one thing a lot of people will be watching for is how he can tolerate that, tolerate sitting there and listening to, um, listening to evidence about himself and listening to, listening to openings and closings that he doesn't like from the other side. <laughs> I mean, that's presumably why he walked out on Robbie Kaplan's closing is that he didn't like 
he didn't want to sit there and listen to what she had to say about him. Um, but he's not going to have a choice when it's when it comes to a criminal trial. And so, and then I think the other thing, um, and you sort of mentioned this, but um, the other thing is, I think, you know, there are he's not a lawyer and he's not um, experienced in court, it, you know, as a, as you know, he dealt with lots of legal matters before he became president, but nothing like these. And I think it's sometimes confusing why certain evidence isn't being let in or uh, confusing or frustrating. And he definitely made that clear that he felt that way. And I think he'll probably feel that way in other cases too, I would imagine. Um, so I don't know if he'll, I don't know how he'll handle that, but I, but I expect that that will be the case. Now, Erica, I'm going to ask you the question I get asked a lot, which is, is there anything else you wish that I asked? Is there anything else that you want people to know having now covered both E. Jean Carroll trials? I think that, yeah, I mean, it's just that her, I, I wish that people could have seen her testify in particular. Yeah. Erica Orden, thank you so much for bringing us to the trial, talking us through the lawyering, the claims, the judge, the jury. It was really interesting for me, and I'm very appreciative of your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. 